because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Very excited about this week's episode. I have another guest, and it's actually another economist. His name is uh, Dr. Raymond Niles. I know him as Ray, and I've, I've known him from way back. He has actually taught me a lot about energy in that he had an excellent article, uh, got to be a dozen years ago, about what a free market electricity grid would look like. Uh, but we're actually not going to talk about that at all today, or maybe, maybe we'll get to it uh, in some fleeting way. But the reason I'm having him on is because he's been doing some great work on the issue of what does a proper free market response to COVID-19 look like? That's been a big interest of mine. And I had followed his work a little bit and he reached out to me and I've been reading his stuff and I think it's really good and really important. So I wanted to bring him on the show. Just a tiny bit of, of background because I always forget to give the guests credentials. He um, is an uh, economics, he's an economist. He got his PhD at George Mason. He teaches at DePaul University, and he is a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economics Research. But more importantly, he's a good thinker and a pro-liberty thinker, and I'm very excited to have him here today. So, Ray, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, great to have you, and great to see you again. It's been years since I think I've seen your 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 moving your moving face. I've seen your face in in pictures. Okay, so let's see. So as I said, you've been writing a bunch of really you know what I regard as really interesting stuff, and one of the themes has been you know what is a, a free market response to this look like. So I just before we get into some of the points you've been making, I'm curious, why are you so motivated to get involved in this issue? Because this is obviously not an issue probably a year ago, you weren't planning on, oh, I'm going to be talking about economics as they relate to viruses. So what's what's your motivation? Well, I'll tell you, I'll be as blunt as I can. I want to live, uh, you know, and I, I think that might sound, you know, I'll explain myself. My first article I, I wrote about this was March 3rd, and it's called anti-gouging laws can kill. And what I'm referring to is the fact that it, when this pandemic began, the first thing, thing that people wanted were masks to protect themselves. I got a little prop right here. And you couldn't find them anywhere. And I thought, you know, okay, I can't find masks on a shelf. As an economist, that made me think, why are there shortages? And then my thought was, uh, you know, when there are shortages, usually you, we find that the government is involved by restricting prices, by not allowing prices to rise. So this is sort of how I got interested in the topic. And then I, I wrote a number of articles. I started a petition. I did a lot of different things stemming from this. I mean, one, one point you've made in some of your articles that really motivated me was you talked about historically, there are numerous incidents where the government seemingly took a temporary amount of power, which we now know has been permanent or at least permanent thus far. Can you talk about that? Because it's very relevant right now as we see these dramatic increases in power. And we may be tempted to think, oh, this is just... This is just an art. This is just an element of the current situation. And once we get a therapy, once we get a vaccine, uh, the the government will shrink again. Yeah. What happens is uh, there's been good historical research on this, but whenever there's an emergency, government assumes you know additional powers than it would normal not normally have. And the biggest, the no most typical case would be in the case of war, but not just in the case of war. But what we find is that when the government when the emergency is over, 
the level of government involvement in our lives doesn't go back all the way to where it was before the emergency. Actually, there's a ratcheting upward in government control. So it goes up, goes down, and never goes down to quite the level it was before. I'll give you one example of that. Uh, World War One. okay, the income tax had just been imposed about a year before. And the idea was the top marginal rate was 6% or 7%. That's hard to believe, right? No one paid yeah. the tax rate that low of 7%. During the war, during World War I, they raised it to something like, as I recall, like 60%. Okay, and in World War II, it went up to 92%. And everyone said, well, it's only going to be that high because of the war. Well, in the 20s, it never went below like 25 or 30% the top marginal rate. So there's a permanent ratcheting higher in the income tax rate, which was envisioned mainly as a temporary thing to pay for a war. Was it was it passed to pay for the war? Was that the one of the main ideas? Well, no, it wasn't. So it wasn't passed to pay for the war. But once it was passed, uh, the idea was that the rates would be very low. They would, you know, they would never be that high. And so the idea of these sort of permanently high rates, uh, that was thought of as a temporary wartime measure. And, and they became a permanent feature of our lives. I mean, the top marginal rate today is like 35%. Uh, so... Uh, you know, so that would be one example. Another example I would give would be price controls, just talking about price controls more generally. That was uh, imposed as a wartime measure both during World War I and World War II. During World War II, we had total controls over all the wages. You know, if you're a barber or a lawyer, everyone's wages were set by the government. All prices of all goods were set by the government. And then when the war ended, they didn't take all the controls off. For example, they left them in place in New York City on housing. And the result was since World War II, we've had a permanent shortage of housing in New York City mm -hmm. because builders don't have an incentive to build when the government sets their rates artificially low on apartment houses. So that's an example of, an, you know, of a control that was a wartime control. And then when peace came, you know, some of the controls remained into place. Why do you think it is that that the controls don't get removed? Well, I think what one of the reasons is, is vested interests are created. So, for example, in New York City, just maybe not to belabor the point of New York City, but this is where I live. Uh, uh, there was a, a rent, you know, every two years they have these hearings on rent regulations and how mm -hmm. much they're raise rents. And so you have these tenants screaming and yelling at the hearing saying rent rollback rent rollback and then you have landlords saying I, you know i want to increase my rent well there's this true story one landlord went up to a city councilman and he he owned a small some small buildings in new york his family had owned them for decades and he was literally being bled to death okay in the 70s many of these buildings were just abandoned by their owners and he went up to the city councilman and he said don't you know that you're destroying us when our when our rents stay flat, our costs go up. We have to. We're going to lose our properties. And and the city councilman looked around. He said, "Look around the room." He said, "There are twenty of them for each one of you." And he meant the tenants. So he didn't care. He might have understood the economics, but it wasn't important to him. These vested interests. They were voters, and the voters felt that the rent controls were in their interest. They didn't understand the bigger picture. Yeah, I find I find this issue of the controls ratcheting up really motivating to get involved because just knowing a bit of the history myself, I can just see, oh, we're at a point where we're having really unprecedented use of power, particularly by state governors, just saying, well, we can indefinitely tell people to stay in their homes. And that's that's scary to me that that could continue indefinitely. And in fact, that it could get normalized. So I, that's 
part of my own motivation for getting involved, seeing like, oh, this is a time sensitive thing. I have a lot of other things in a sense I'd rather be talking about other plans. But once these things get established, they're very, very hard uh, to move back. What what for you have been the most alarming elements of the government response? Well, so there's give it, I, one. There's been, I mean, I think just the uh, you know unilateral, I'd call it arrogation of authority or the grabbing of authority, where it's just arbitrary. I mean, the governor of Michigan apparently banned more than one person in a car. I mean, she just decided to do that, so only one person could be in a car. Or, you know, I actually in California, I saw a story where someone was uh, uh, sailboarding on the beach and they were arrested because that violated some rule about the use of the beach. It's, it's very arbitrary. And actually, I, I just want to give one more example, which is sort of a modern day example of controls breeding controls, which is actually the title of one of my articles. Uh, when you have price controls, you do create shortages. People can't get things like masks or other goods, you know, meat, uh, uh, you know, sanitizer, hand sanitizer. So then the next step, the what government should do is just decontrol the markets. Then people can get the goods through the free market process. But if they don't do that, the next step is rationing. And we've actually gone further than that already in our government, where uh, the federal government is seizing shipments of medical equipment and you know ventilators and drugs. And just the federal government just seizes it, goods that were bought and paid for by other parties. And then they seize it and allocate it. And not surprisingly, guess who gets the goods? I mean, then then you get, you know, if you're literally like a friend of the president, uh, you, you know, suddenly you're getting the shipment of of tests that another state's unable to get. That that to me is what a dictatorship actually looks like. I hate to use that word, but it is dictatorial. So I, I, I've mentioned a couple of times of pro-freedom response, pro-free market response. You had an article recently on, uh, I forget, it was like, in, had, had to do with individual experiments. That was a title in it. But in that, you gave, I think, a pretty clear articulation of what you think the role of government is. Now, obviously, something is, this is something I've talked about, too. But I'm curious, how would you state, what do you think the role of the government of a free society is in this pandemic? I think the role of government is to empower individuals uh, to take all steps to protect themselves. So for example, uh, uh, a, a person owns a business, they should be free to set whatever policy they want uh, uh, to protect themselves and their customers. They might require that people wear a mask, or maybe uh, they don't require that people wear a mask, or they, only re- or, or they demand that only you know one person at a time enter the business. But they're right, their ownership over their property should be respected. It's interesting that when this pandemic began, people began taking self-protective measures before they were mandated by the government. You actually look at the data, people began sort of sheltering in place, if you wanna use that language. Uh, This has been tracked through cell phone data and you can actually see people stopped moving around, they started staying at home several weeks before governments began banning it. And what's unfortunate about the governments banning it, it's a one size fits all solution. Uh, So I think the government should allow people to be free to protect themselves. And part of this means if, you know, in regard to prices is we need to allow the market mechanism to, to encourage the production of goods. If there's a spike in demand for masks or there's a spike in demand for hand sanitizer, prices need to rise and they will rise 
And that's an, that's a, a signal to the manufacturers they can make more money by making these things. So they will make more things. They'll bring on extra shifts. They'll increase their production. And these life-saving products will meet people's needs. One other example I would give. Uh, so let's go back even earlier on. Look at other countries, how they dealt with this situation, like South Korea, for example. First of all, they had masks right away. They didn't have an issue with masks. There were no price controls on masks. Secondly, they were able to get tests right away. So this is another thing. Allow people to manufacture and sell tests, even cures, without having to get permission from a government regulator. It turns out in South Korea, it was a couple guys, like, I mean, on their own, they decoded the genome for the coronavirus, and within a super rapid period of time, they were making te uh, um, test kits on their own, and and they became widely available in, in, in South Korea. These were actually banned. They could, were not legal to be imported in the United States because they hadn't been approved by the uh, Federal Drug Administration. So I'd say- The, the Food and Drug Administration? Or the C CDC and or the Food and Drug Administration were involved in that, yeah. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is empower individuals to allow them to be free to take what actions they think are necessary in their, in their self-interest. So I want to dive into a couple of those. And I know the one you focus the most on is, is price controls. And so there's a narrative that, okay, in a time of crisis, greedy people will raise the, you know, will raise the price of something that's in high demand, like a mask, and then people won't be able to get it. And so the benevolent government needs to just force them to lower the price. And then that'll be uh, fantastic. And one article you wrote, talked about Canada's experience because can you talk about Canada's experience at least early on because it seems they didn't have the same shortages that we did yeah I was very surprised uh, when uh, our campus was shut down like campuses all over the country uh, my students sort of scattered all over the world and some internationally and some were in Canada and in the United States so I asked them uh, I asked a survey of my students uh, what's what can't you find in the stores so when an economist thinks of a shortage, they mean nothing on the shelves, okay? Not that it's you know more expensive or anything like that, but what can't you find that you want? It, it was interesting. The list was very random. Someone in Indianapolis said, "I can't find flour." Someone, uh, you know, in Chicago said, "I can find flour, but I can't find ground beef." It was this whole assortment. No one could find masks or even toilet paper anywhere. Then I had a few students in Toronto, and I said, "Okay, you know, give me the list. What can't you find?" I said, "Well." We can find everything. There's no shortages. There's no real issue. Uh, we did have a shortage of toilet paper for about a week, uh, and then it went away. But otherwise, we can find everything we want. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. So I, I, I did some research. I said, I thought to myself, what, what are the laws regarding the setting of prices? And it turns out, um, in in the United States, I'll, I'll just show this. Uh, this is a map of the United States and those red states. So for people, so some people are just listening. So there's a map of the U.S. and it's mostly uh, red. Um, and so explain. Yeah. So basically, uh, starting about 30 or 35 years ago, uh, individual states in the United States began to impose what are called anti-price gouging laws. And what the laws say is that when there's an emergency, it could be, let's say, a hurricane a flood like Hurricane Katrina, which actually caused, you know, the hurricane devastated Florida, but then it really devastated New Orleans, or like the, the pandemic we're facing now, 
the government in the various states limits the increase of prices of what are considered essential goods. So, for example, in when Hurricane Katrina hit Florida in the, in the mid 2000s, uh, electricity was was wiped out across the state. And there was a, a guy in uh, Alabama who thought, well, there's a real need for generators in Florida, so I'll bring them in. And generators normally cost about 300 bucks. And he loaded up his U-Haul, uh, uh, brought, in, brought in generators, and he was going to charge, I don't know, six or $700 for the generators. And people were very much willing to pay for the generators. And yeah. instead, the generators were confiscated, and he was thrown in jail. So, um, so what these laws have the effect of doing is when there's an emergency, demand will spike up for that good. So it, you know, it'll spike up for bottled water, it'll spike up for generators. In the case of this pandemic, it was first, it was the N95 mask. Demand spiked up. What normally happens with supply and demand, if demand increases, initially there's no increase in supply, the market has to clear at a higher price. And what that means is, sure, prices are higher, but the goods are still available. If you're willing to pay that higher price, you can actually get the good. What happens then is that people who maybe they thought, well, I'll buy 10 masks. They only buy two masks, but they don't worry about it because they know the masks will still be on the shelves. And then with the higher prices, there's a huge rush of new production from all over the country, like that guy bringing in the generators from out of state. What these anti-gouging laws do, and, they, and, they, and some of them, for example, the state of Hawaii just says you cannot raise prices at all during an emergency. In your state, in California, it says you can't raise prices by more than 10% from what they were before the emergency. In New York and in Florida, it says you can't raise prices by an unconscionable amount. Uh -huh. how, That's super specific. Yeah. How much is that? So what, what, what it means in practice is the merchants... They just they, they don't raise the prices, especially the big national chains. So what happens is, you know, if you're the first in line, you see the big supply of masks, you buy them all out. And if you're next in line, there are no masks for you. So what these laws have the effect of doing is, is causing an artificial shortage of the goods. They get sold out at the artificially low price. There's no incentive to bring in a new supplies in any extra larger quantities. And those lucky first people who got them. And then what happens is people, they, they discover, oh, my God, the masks ran out. Well, now they're panicked. Well, maybe I, I better buy flour. So demand spikes for random other goods. Mm. The prices don't rise. And those fly off the shelves and you have an actual shortage of those goods. So the choice isn't goods are readily available at the artificially low price set by the government versus getting gouged by greedy retailers. That's not the choice. The choice is getting gouged, having a price increase and actually getting the goods and then having an increase in supply, which will eventually bring the price of the goods down or not having the goods at all. Yeah, I mean, I. I like that, except I don't like the term gouge at all, because it's, I mean, gouging means you're, what, putting a hole in somebody? And it's its actually, I mean, if I'm paying it, that means it's, I consider that the absolute best use of my money. that That's what it means. And so, yeah, it's nice. Often we can get things for a lot less than we would be willing to pay, but we're still not being screwed if we have to pay more. Like if a gallon of milk is $6 and it's worth $6 and then- 
I should be willing to pay uh, $6. And yeah, you just, I, I like this point about the, how the panic, like the, the, how the, the price controls, uh, th like the shortages create panic that then make the, that then create shortages from the other price controls, this like p progression of panic. Oh yeah. It's a spreading panic. It's a, it, 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 you know, the panic breeds panic, by the way, a term I like better where we know this, how about surge pricing, right? Right. We, right from so Uber. Uber, you know, think about it, a rainy day, what happens on a rainy day? Demand spikes to take the cars, right? People, at least at, like I know in New York, people would have taken the subway or would have walked. Suddenly they're hitting the Uber button. The supply of cars can't immediately increase. So what happens is when the prices go up, the people who really, really need a car can get it versus not getting a car at all. And I know what it was like before Uber in New York when and prices of cabs were set by the government. You might have to wait 45 minutes or an hour for a cab. How about now let's take an extreme example. How about if your wife was pregnant and is about to give birth and you need, you need to get her to the hospital, right? Or you just hurt yourself or, you know, you have to get to the uh, uh, to the show for an eight o'clock, uh, you know, curtain and you're willing to pay that higher price. With the price controls, you, you just don't get a car. That's what happens. So uh, surge pricing, another economist calls it emergency pricing. You know, prices that aren't typical, they're higher because of the increase in demand during the emergency, but they're still market prices. Yeah, gouging is a pejorative term. So the, the dynamics we're talking about here, I mean, it seems like whenever, you know, when the price goes up, there are at least two dynamics. One is that the consumers of the good economize. So they think, oh, how much of this do I really need? And they may adjust their actions to need less of it. And then the producers are motivated to produce more of it. And this then should raise, I think, in people's minds, what about this issue of hospital capacity? If there were prices with hospital capacity, wouldn't it be that, oh, we're willing to pay more? And then pe people on the one hand, they start to think, how do I avoid going to this hospital? And if they, and this is part of what you mentioned with the tracking of people, they're think even without the exact price incentive, they're saying, yeah, I don't want to go to the hospital. It turns out it's more costly to go to this indoor large gathering than I thought it was. So I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to be less likely to go to the hospital. But on the other hand, the hospitals, if they were getting an influx of, of money in the form of higher prices, they should have been... Uh, able to increase capacity. So what, what was happening so that this didn't really happen? Yeah, I think, I think basically uh, our medical system is, super, is, is arguably the most regulated industry in the country. I mean, I debate, you know, is electricity the most regulated industry or insurance? But probably medicine, 50% of all the bills are paid by the government. And what it means is de facto, meaning in fact, they set the prices. So if you're owning, if you run a hospital, uh, you're, you more or less can't do what you suggest. You can't raise prices. Now, what would a hospital do if it could raise prices? First of all, when there's a pandemic, more people need to use the hospitals. Uh, you know, that means they should be able to raise prices and that encourages them to increase capacity, right? Then they have the financial means. We don't need government sending over hospital ships to New York or, you know, converting convention centers into beds. Hospitals themselves can do it. They can put in these emergency tents, maybe rent space in a school gymnasium, set up, you know, expand the number of hospital beds. But if the prices are set by the government, the financial means to do that doesn't exist. And so we have uh, an artificial scarcity of hospital beds. And, and you know what? This is also an example of controls breeding controls, because think about this whole original argument for the lockdowns. To me, it's very disturbing as an economist. It, it, it's sort of like, uh, 
you know, I don't know, you know, I have a, I have a sore toe and the doctor says, I'll fix your so toe, sore toe. Let me cut your foot off. Right. Well, yeah, the sore toe is the sore toe is gone um, because we don't have enough hospital beds. They're going to shut down the entire economy, the whole economy, everything lock, stock and barrel, make it illegal to leave your homes except for, you know, under conditions the government sets to keep the infection rates so low. They tr they're treating the number of hospital beds like it's a law of nature. But this is a man-made service. This is a man-made service like uh, like hotel beds or, you know, it, you know, it's a man-made service. The market mechanism would incentivize hospitals to provide more beds and it would have the other effect that you're talking about. It would mean that the highest valued use would use the beds so that, uh, for example, maybe someone who has an elective surgery, cosmetic surgery, they say, God, now it costs me double to go to the hospital. I'm going to uh, put off my facelift for three months. And now that bed can be fi filled by someone, uh, you know, who has coronavirus. And the government just doesn't have to be involved. with If the price mechanism is allowed to work, the government doesn't have to be involved at all. Uh, sorry if the, if any of the viewers see a little bit of a, of a skip. It's because I was about to run out of electricity, which would be ironic on this uh, particular podcast. Uh, so, Ray, I wanted to follow up with this issue on hospital capacity as we're talking about what a free market would do versus what a controlled market does and, and how that gets messed up. This hospital capacity thing, the thing I keep noticing now is, remember we were told, the most of us were told, like even if you yourself are not at high risk from this, you should be willing to be forced to be inside your home indefinitely because if you have a serious thing, then the hospital won't have the capacity if the hospital has been overloaded. But what's very conspicuous now is that the capacity of the whole medical system has gone dramatically down because people aren't able to go for other procedures. And, you know, people are like hospitals are losing money. Doctors are losing money. Practices are closing. So the very thing that we were supposed to avoid, it actually hasn't happened through an overload of the beds, but it's happened through a decrease of the of the uh, the whole system. So we're still out of the ability to get uh, medicine, even though there wasn't the overload. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's an example of the principle controls breed controls or the law, uh, well, the law of unintended consequences. So instead of allowing the market to allocate beds, uh, which unfortunately the medical system is so heavily regulated, right? It, it, it's not going to really work that well, uh, but maybe they could have deregulated prices or done something uh, they just impose this arbitrary rule, no non-essential medical procedures are going to be permitted in the hospitals. Well, guess what? That's how hospitals make money. So they've destroyed the most of the revenue opportunity for hospitals. And then when it turns out, it turns out the original estimates of the infection rate and the death rate for coronavirus were way too high. It's just a fact. They were way too high. So the number of beds they thought they would need for coronavirus was you know, it was a big mistake on what they thought to begin with. Uh, so, you know, so what happened is the revenues of the hospitals tumbled and they didn't need the beds anyway for coronavirus. But now the hospitals are starting to close down. They're actually starting to go bankrupt and shut down because of the lack of revenue. So the government should have just had said nothing. Let the hospitals accommodate the situation. Uh, 
like I said, if they could raise prices, they could figure out ways if they needed additional beds, they could accommodate the coronavirus people, the people voluntarily who had truly elective surgery just would would have not paid those higher prices. And and they would have, you know, it's sort of like, um, uh, you know, the cab situation. If if I have a real urgent need for the cab when prices are really high, I'll take the cab. But if I'm like, yeah, I just thought I'd go to the grocery store by cab and now prices are really high during the rainstorm. I'm not going to go and take the cab during this time. So I think it's a, an example of an unintended consequence of the government sort of getting overly involved in this situation. Just one thing that struck me throughout this is how little respect there is for the, the decisions of people in a free economy. And you can think of this on the level of individuals' lives. Like, you don't, nobody seemed to care what happens when you force individuals to stay in their homes. What does that do to their plans, their health, even like people who need to be sane to just go outside or people for that matter, I've talked about on a previous episode who believe that going outside is really good for your health and, and in particular for protecting yourself against something like this, which I definitely think there's just no respect for the rights of individuals, for the judgment of individuals. And you see this at the level of people locked inside their homes, but you also see this on the level of the hospitals just, oh, well, we're going to just, we just decided that all the hospitals, what they should do is they should be infinitely ready for one virus. That's it. And no matter where they are, no matter how much it's spread, you said one size fits all, which is a total description. Like if something bad is happening in Italy, if something bad is happening in New York City, then it must be everywhere. And so we're going to order the whole country to stop everything uh, so that it has infinite, the maximum possibility of dealing with this virus, regardless of any other uh, circumstances. It's just an incredible uh, example of, I, I, it's almost fascism, you could call it, in terms of, like, supposedly we own our lives and we own our property, but we're not allowed to use it when the government decides that the virus is a significant enough threat. Yeah, and I think this is the real thing that bothers me a lot. Our government has never... Uh, invoke this authority, as far as I know, and, you know, I'm an economist, not so much a political economist, but I, you know, I, I, I'll take that label to some degree. Our government has never exercised authority like this. I mean, even in wartime, even in the Civil War, I don't think the government ever uh, ordered people about to this degree. And what bothers me, to be honest, is I don't see very much protest against it. I mean, we're seeing some now a little bit in places. I see individual examples uh, you know, there was the, you know, an art gallery in California. There are barbers, there are bar owners who are, who are trying to open their businesses despite this. But where's the mass revolution or mass revolt against this? Where I feel like the uh, original American spirit of, of pride in your individual freedom is just not evident the way it should be because our government it is fascistic. It is fascistic. It, it, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the end justifies the means. Basically, it's kind of like what you're saying. You know, given this problem, now we can do everything. Everything is permitted. We can impose any restriction on hospitals, any restriction on people's behavior in their homes, in their cars, their businesses. We could shut them all down. We could drive them into bankruptcy across the board. In fact, there's just literally any we can do anything we want. What happened to our Constitution? You know, and I know governments in an emergency, you know, can take additional action and they should and they need to. But it still has to be within the there have to be limits. And they, they're, they're, you know, 
find it upsetting. So I feel like given the past history of how the government doesn't fully relinquish powers once granted to us, to it, in the future, they just have to declare an emergency, right? Uh, and then they can do whatever they want. I feel like we've crossed, uh, I'm re-watching the series Rome on television, and I, I feel like we've crossed a Rubicon in America, uh, you know, in terms of our freedoms. I don't want to sound you know, a little too pessimistic here. I'm an optimistic person, but it does bother me a lot. Yeah, I mean, it particularly bothered me. It bothered me even more, I should say, early on, because just from the beginning, I mean, my, my view is, OK, the government, the only justification for anything it does is it's actually protecting our freedom. And so if there's some new virus that enters and there's some hot spot and it's saying, OK, well, this is really going to interfere with everybody's freedom so we can identify it, isolate these people for, you know, the, just a temporary amount of time as long as they're contagious. Yeah, that kind of thing is legitimate. But when it says, well, the you know, our policy means that none of you are free until further notice. And we, there are no specific criteria. I mean, that, that is just a total violation. And it was just, it was sad to me that people didn't have at least the sense that this is wrong. This can't be the only way or even close to the best way of dealing with a, a virus. Certainly, and we had reason to believe at the beginning, this isn't something that's just a death ray that's about to kill everybody. It's very, it's, you know, selectively very dangerous for some populations uh, compared to others. But what, I, what I've seen over time is there is much more of a rebellion. I mean, you're seeing these different protests, but even online, you know, looking on Twitter, on Facebook, I'm in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community, and you're seeing a lot of them start to stand up because they're basically being told, oh, you're not allowed to do jiu-jitsu until there's a vaccine. And people think, well, I, but I like jiu-jitsu and I'm not at very low risk and maybe I can ventilate the gym well. And it can be, which I, I think, by the way, is very underestimated how important ventilation is versus distancing, which is another um Another show, but, and that's part of actually people making the best decisions. Like people have to decide with limited evidence what is actually going to keep you safe. It can't just be, oh, the government said social distancing. So as long as I do that, I'm going to be safe. I think there are people who did socially distance and they seem to have gotten it in like churches and other indoor things. So that's, that's kind of a, a tangent, except that it's, I think people are seeing there's something very wrong and very un American. And this has really motivated me to try to articulate how does a free society deal with this? What's an American way of doing it? What would have been an American way of dealing with it at the beginning? What's an American way of dealing with it now? And then what is an American way of dealing with the next pandemic? And so that's part of the reason I had you on here is I want people to see, oh, wait, like a free society can deal with this and deals with it much, much better. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. Like right away when the pandemic began, uh, you know, you couldn't find these things. Okay. And the only reason, and you know, I, I, I want to stress this, the only reason you couldn't find the mask is because of the anti-gouging laws. I, you know, it's like uh it, it might seem hard to believe, but it's an actual fact. It's the only reason you couldn't find these masks. There would have been no shortages if prices were allowed to rise. There were no shortages in South Korea. In places that where the government doesn't interfere with prices, you could always get the masks. They were just there. The prices would have gone up, uh, but they would still have been available. In fact, I mean, they're not they're not like a hundred thousand dollars a mask or something like that. Well, so go from a dollar to four bucks. Right. And this is something where people like if they think they need them, I mean, that's their whole well-being and their just sanity. And you just think there should has to be something wrong if you think we can't produce masks in America 
for a long period of time. I'm not just talking a day or something, but weeks on end, you can't get these things. Like that, you, I, th I think if you understand how free individuals and free societies work, the default should be, what the hell is the government doing to screw this up? Because there's no way that 330 million smart people in America can't figure out how to produce a mask. Well, you know, think about it with fads. So like, uh, I, I don't know, there was a spinner wheel things. I yeah, yeah the, the fidget spinner. Fidget spinners. Suddenly there's this fad for fidget spinners. And guess what? They're everywhere. And yeah. actually they're pretty expensive, but you can get it. You can get it. You're going to pay four bucks for the fidget spinner. And then, you know, the, then, you know, a month goes by and the fad's kind of wearing off. They're down to a buck a fidget spinner, but there was never an actual shortage of fidget spinners. You can actually get the darn things. They still had to be manufactured, shipped in from China probably. I agree with you. Why can't we get a simple mask? And it's because if they're selling for a buck each before the crisis and then demand spikes, suddenly they should clear out at three or four dollars each. Uh, but then the government says that you can't raise the price at all. So then they just they fly off the shelves and you have a shortage of the, of, of the of the mask. And it was the same thing with tests as well. Uh, you know, the free market there applies to being able to manufacture it without having to get permission first, okay? And that was a difference between South Korea and the United States. You could just make it and sell it. As far as I know, you did not need any sort of governmental permission. And the second thing was there were no price controls. So you could charge whatever you want for the test. Maybe you're the first person to develop a test. You charge $100 a test. And maybe, guess what happens? Other people see you're charging 100 bucks a test and they think, well, I could sell it for 75 bucks a test. They start supplying it for 75. Another guy says, I could do it for $50 a test. And someone has an accuracy of 90%. Some guy develops a new system. He can do it at an accuracy of 95% and let the best and cheapest test win. That can only happen if A, you don't have to ask permission to manufacture it and B, the government gets hands off in terms of pricing. Well, guess what? In this country, you cannot sell any new medical device or test without a long, laborious approval process of the government. And the government explicitly banned these South Korean tests from coming into our country. So the reason I say all this, when this pandemic began, people weren't free to protect themselves. They weren't free to protect themselves. Guess what? If I don't trust other people, I think they might be infected. I put this on my face. You know, I wore glasses and I had an antibody test just a week ago. I was putting these things on really early. I'm negative. My whole family's negative. You know, I don't need to shut down someone else's business to protect me. You know, I don't need to do that. I'm capable of taking my own self-protective uh, mechanisms anyways. But this is what was not allowed to happen. And so then the, the caseload expanded, the you know, number of infections expanded. And then people panicked and they decided we have to shut down everything, you know, to preserve the hospital beds. So, um, you know, kind of going on and on here. No, no, those are all really good points. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about that I want to write about at some point is it's really important in deciding when the government gets involved, to what extent is something avoidable? So there's this whole idea they'll say, oh, well, if you go out, you know, you're killing people or, you know, you're killing somebody's grandmother. But that grandmother can decide whether to go out. This isn't something that that transmits a thousand miles. It's not, as again, it's not a death ray. And so in general, yeah, it's it's people, you know, if you say this many people died, well, in general, this many people are choosing to put themselves in situations and they're, 
in many ways, they're rightly trying to put themselves in situations. I mean, I have a bunch of elderly neighbors and some of them are probably deciding, I would rather increase my risk of death by 1% and be able to go to the pool and walk on the beach because who knows how long I'll be alive. Like that's a rational thing for them. And it's in a free country, like here's a controversial statement, like the freest, the best outcome with regard to coronavirus, given how quickly it spreads, is not zero deaths and is not the the country with the lowest coronavirus deaths is not the best country. The country in which individuals are freest to decide what to do about coronavirus within the context of their lives, that's the best country. It's the same with the flu and it's the same with everything else. Yeah, I actually said in my Controls Breeding Controls article, I I want to be free. Um, I would rather live in a free economy, even if I have a higher risk of dying as a result of living in a freer economy. We all make trade-offs with regard to life and death. I mean, some people, you know, uh, uh, I remember I took karate one time briefly, and, and I remember one of my instructors got his kidney hurt with an errant punch, you know, or you could do skydiving. Very dangerous, but that's that person's choice to take those risks. Life means taking risks. Uh, and we should be free to do that. I, I would say another thing, too, about self-responsibility. So my parents are elderly, and they live in an, in an assisted living facility in Florida. Right away when this thing began, before the government of Florida told them to do anything, they closed themselves down. My brother, who lives down there, could not visit my parents. That was an order given by the assisted living facility. Now, they didn't imprison my parents because my parents could have just moved out. But they said, look, we want to protect everyone and they put in severe restrictions when they're outside vendors. They had to, you know, scrub themselves down. And and that whole facility has remained free of the pandemic. So they were free, regardless of what's going on in the outer world, regardless of the state of the virus, that death rate, you know, in the outer world, they were free to protect themselves. Now, contrast that with what happened in New York. The governor of New York some assisted living facilities and nursing homes had done the same thing. He is looking at the people as a big blob, a big collective. You know, it's just mankind. Let's protect mankind. And he thought, well, it's better for mankind if we make those nursing homes accept COVID patients. People who tested positive for COVID, he ordered the nursing homes to accept those patients. I got to tell you, if he did that, in Florida, to my parents, I would want to hire a lawyer to see if I could get them prosecuted for manslaughter or something, you know. But when the government is involved treating the people as a big blob or collective, they're not thinking about our individual rights. And such travesties as what happened in New York becomes acceptable. So I think private action is always better. And I think, you know, we were able to protect ourselves. We didn't need government to shut things down. So I would go even further as far as shutting things down. Like, I don't think they should have done it at all, because this is where I think about the political economy factors. Uh, once the government has authority to shut down businesses, you know, I felt there was a risk that they it would be open ended, you know, because just to say up front, oh, they're only going to do it for two weeks. Once government, the history is once government takes on these powers, they don't let it go. And uh, and I think that's something that we see going on right now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a strong case for that direction. As I've talked about in one podcast, I think that 
if it's going to do anything, it should really identify these specific behaviors are demonstrably a threat to others that the others won't really be able to avoid. And so it's really then initiating force. And But I think there's a really high bar for that kind of thing. And that's totally different from saying, oh, you have no freedom to do anything because we're panicked yeah. and we don't know what's good. Like that is totally out of bounds. It's a total uh, violation. As uh, as we're wrapping up, I wanted to share with you an idea that I've been thinking about and 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 get your take. One reason I've been interested in this is that I think that narratives, you know, the narrative about these big events shapes the whole future of the country. So you look at, say, the narrative about the Great Depression. And insofar as people believe, oh, the Great Depression was caused by too much freedom, then they think, oh, well, the New Deal heroically rescued us and that, you know, that stopped all the unemployment problems, even though it's totally not true if you look at the history. And I'm very interested in what's the narrative that people take away from this. And I think, in fact, there is a big opportunity for people to take a pro-freedom narrative for the following reason. The establishment on this issue was clearly not pro-freedom. I mean, I think it did almost nobody, you know, no state, federal, there was not a generally pro-freedom response. And you can see two things that I think have been borne out already and will be borne out more. One is that there were these catastrophe predictions that were totally overblown. As you mentioned, there's this inflation of the death rate. This is a very common thing that people trying to take away freedom do. They take often something that's a real threat, but they hyperinflate it, they catastrophize it to inspire fear and panic so that then anything they do is justified. But we've seen in fast forward how these claims were just totally inflated. That's one thing. And then the other thing is we've seen the destruction of taking away people's freedom. It's immediate to tens of millions of Americans. They can see my life is a lot worse because of these policies. And now maybe people will say, oh, well, it would have been worse because of the virus anywhere. Anyway, but you're seeing certain places, Taiwan, South Korea, Sweden, in different ways where people were freer and they're not all dying from the virus. They didn't have this Armageddon. And so what that shows is that a pro-freedom response was possible and was better. And I'm really interested in anything that can be done to tell the truth about what has happened in that the catastrophists have unjustly and catastrophically restricted our freedom and then the implications uh, going forward. I'm curious what, what you think about that opportunity. It is a huge opportunity. This is why I'm writing like crazy. I mean, in the past two months, I, I think I added up, I've written six articles at the American Institute for Economic Research, which has been putting out all kinds of good research. Yeah, they have. Yeah, and like talking, for example, about the errors and the models. It's interesting about the models issue. So I haven't written about it, but I'm pretty familiar with it. I used to do that professionally. I was a modeler. Uh, I was a stock analyst and I modeled companies' future profits because the stock price for any company reflects the projection of future profits. Anyone who does a model on anything, whether it's virus spread, future profits, uh, temperature increases, right? Like the global mm -hmm. warming issue. Anyone who does this knows that the end result, especially if you go out for some period of time, is highly sensitive to your assumptions. And if you tweak the assumptions a little bit, you can get widely differing results. So maybe you tweak the assumption and you get a result of projected 2 million deaths in the US, and I tweak it a little bit differently and I get a projection of you know 200,000 deaths. And think about who is gonna get the attention uh, of the media and also of the, of the politicians if someone's sort of you know quietly, maybe in a modest way, saying, "Well, I, my model projects 200,000 deaths or 100,000 deaths," 
you know, and then someone else says, there are going to be 2 million deaths. Well, first of all, you're getting on uh, CNN or, you know, whatever you're, 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 you know, this is that people like that, right? They like the big headline, but also for a, for a politician who gains glory in acting, right? Glory in acting, uh, that's the person they're going to turn to. And, and I think, you know, what bothers me also about, you know, the political involvement is, um, you know, the people who then impose these one size fits all solution on everyone, uh, you know, they've revealed a tremendous ignorance of, you know, science, biology, economics, and, you know, it's okay to be ignorant. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that, but not if you're imposing your ignorance on everyone. I have a big problem with that. And that's one of the big arguments for individual liberty. We're the ones who decides what works best in our own lives. And I think if the market had been free, free prices, free entry of new medical devices, you know, free up hospital pricing, we all could have, without the government, you know, imposing these draconian measures, could have taken, you know, protected ourselves from this, this uh, pandemic. And when you say free markets, I just want to emphasize, it's really just free individuals. I mean, you could think market is just a relationship that individuals have, but it's really, is the government allowing us to be free to deal with this virus as we judge best, or does it have the right to control our lives in the name of minimizing uh, this virus? As we wrap up, so I'm curious, what are what are you uh, working on going forward? Like you've been writing some good stuff and we'll give people the links to that, but what else are you thinking of doing? Well, I, I, uh, I'm going to uh, write more about the price control issue. Uh, I, I, I want to sort of maybe get into some of the, you know, price controls. I'm reading a good book right now called 40 Centuries of Price Controls, I think it's called. And it starts the history of price controls going back to like Babylonian times. Mm. You know, and of course, famous under Rome, they had price controls. Uh, you know, famous one during the French Revolution that they called the law of the maximum. And uh, and every single and we had it. Oh, I just found this out. So George Washington, Valley Forge, you know, the troops are starving. Uh, 1778, 1779, the winter, you know, the troops are starving and, and, and they're huddled in the winter in Valley Forge. Well, that's in Pennsylvania. Guess what Pennsylvania had at the time? They put in a special set of price controls, especially on the essential items of food that our soldiers would need during the American mm. Revolution. Guess what happened? Shortages. Basically, and then the they got rid of the controls. The following winter, our troops had enough supplies. So I'm very interested in this. And then the second thing I want to write about, it's like another topic, but is sort of getting into uh, the issue of the government's response on with the stimulus and with uh, money printing to sort of shower the economy with money. You know, And, you know, I hear I quote. Maybe you know Marie Antoinette during the French Revolution when the when the price controls created all kinds of shortages, shortages of bread, and she said, "Let them eat cake." Right? That's what she said. Well, I can imagine you know our government is saying, "Let them eat paper." You know, let them eat dollar bills. You know, let's print lots of dollar bills. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's a really important one. I mean, it's another example of just not allowing free individuals to live their lives and not allowing them to produce and trade. And to act like, yeah, we can prevent people from producing, but as long as we produce more money, everything will be fine. And I, and I think this is another opportunity to just teach people about how a, a free uh, society works. And the reason that we have all these goods and services 
is that we have the freedom to produce them. Elon, I don't know if you saw Elon Musk's quote on this on Joe Rogan, but it was just talking about something to the effect of like, hey, to all Joe Rogan was giving the devil's advocate, well, why don't we just stay at home for 18 months and wait for a, a vaccine and give universal income? And he said something to the effect of, let me explain to all the fools out there. If you don't make any stuff, there is no stuff. And I thought, yeah, that's that's a good point. And if you're not free, then you're not going to make uh, very much stuff and you're certainly not going to innovate uh, on the new kinds of stuff. So Ray, I want to thank you a lot for being on the show and also for, I, I really like the work that you're doing and I, I hope to promote it in the future. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, the best way uh, is uh, I go to AIER.com, uh, which stands for the American Institute for Economic Research. It's a dot com, not a dot org? You know, I, th I think, I'm not sure. Okay, AIER.org or dot com, uh, which stands for the American Institute for Economic Research. And that's sort of my main venue where I'm, I'm writing stuff. Um, I have a, my own website, RaymondNiles.com, but I, you know, I probably need to update it a little bit. Uh, but right now, look for me there. And maybe one day, eventually, I can have a nice looking book cover like yours, Alex. I'm looking at it right now, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. But I've written a couple book chapters, and that's sort of next on the horizon is to write a book. And uh, I already have a topic in mind, but nothing I can really discuss yet. It's still formulating it. All right. Well, it's very fun to have written the book. And in many ways, it's fun uh, to write it. So, uh, but it's also challenging to write. But yeah, I would love to see something uh, that you wrote. So, Ray, I'll, I'll talk to you uh, in a minute. I'm going to close the show. But for now, thanks for uh, being on Power Hour. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again to Ray Niles for being on the show. Uh, I'm really happy to see him. And I've known him for a long time, really smart guy. Really happy to see him uh, advocating for freedom on this issue. And if, if you know of anyone else who's doing a really good job of advocating for freedom on this issue, let me know. And that's a segue to, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you want to get uh, the newsletter, which is the best way, or my newsletter, which is the best way to learn about all the different projects I'm working on, go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. Also, if you like the work uh, we're doing, we have lots of big projects uh, this year and you want to help support it during this pandemic, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. That's it for this week. Next week, I'll be back with another great guest. Maybe not another great guest, actually. I'm working on a couple, but at least I'll be back with another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.